And we're back with part two of our discussion of Tupac Shakur and Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G. As per usual, this podcast is not for the prim and proper. We talk murder, rape, incest, and the like. I swear like a fucking sailor, do not come crying that you have in some way been offended. You have been warned. Tupac will again start things off for us, and I will see you on the other side. You wouldn't ask why the roads that grew from the concrete had damaged pedals. On the contrary, we would all celebrate its tenacity. We would all love its will to reach the sun. Well, we are the roses. This is the concrete. These are my damaged pedals. Don't ask me why. I felt the pain and the brain, but I'm still here. But, but I'm still here. I drop a plate, score cakes, for the ill, yeah, for the, for the ill, yeah, ill, yeah. I never did cry, and even though I had pain, it's so much pain. I'm trying to tell you when it's on, you gotta keep your head to the sky, be strong, most of all, hold on. In the last episode, we talked about the women who gave these men life, and I explained a little about their upbringing and childhood. Tupac spent his childhood in a conflicting spate of love and duty, which was undermined by his mother's growing addiction to cocaine. Biggie grew up a bit spoiled, with a big heart and an innate intelligence that seemed to have no focus. By 1984, Afini Shakur had burnt too many bridges in New York. It wasn't that they'd completely lost family and friends. It was that those family members and those friends had finally seen that giving Afini the bare necessities for her and the kids to live was ultimately not helping. It was enabling. If she was going to take care of herself and her two children, it was going to have to be tough love. Afini's sister Jean made arrangements for her, Tupac and Setwa, to move to Baltimore. The three would stay with a cousin for the few weeks it would take for that cousin to move out. Then the apartment would be Afini's responsibility, along with food, utilities, and the welfare of her children. From the authorized biography of Tupac Shakur, quote, Baltimore's inner city, like other urban centers across the country, had withered under the scorching effects of Reaganomics. President Ronald Reagan had promised Americans that he would make the country prouder, stronger, better and vowed that the gains of the wealthiest would trickle down to the communities and the pocketbooks of the less fortunate. Instead, the gap between the rich and the poor continued to widen. Crime increased significantly as the sale of crack cocaine ravaged the communities across the country. Baltimore offered a striking example of the decay and neglect that plagued inner cities, a picture of the urban degradation and despair wrought by Reagan's tax increases on the poor. Moving there was hardly the answer Afini was looking for, as Tupac was quick to note. Baltimore has the highest rate of teenage pregnancy, the highest rate of AIDS within the black community, the highest rate of teens killing teens, and the highest rate of teenage suicide, and the highest rate of blacks killing blacks, he would later recall. And this is where we chose to live, end quote. Their apartment in Baltimore held more challenges than they realized when they left New York. They lived far away from all the emotional and physical support they'd once had. The Panther Party had crumbled, so Afini also felt the pain of being adrift, a crusader without a cause. 
And in addition to the rats eating up all the food and the frigidness of the place with no insulation, they discovered that their new home was dead center in the drug trade of Baltimore, Maryland. Afini got a job working nights doing data processing. She volunteered at Setua's school and spent the time at home studying and spending time with her kids. Tupac spent his time making mixtapes of his favorite songs, practicing those songs, and making his own poems. Those poems eventually turned into his own rap songs. When he was in 8th grade, his class was given the assignment to write a poem about their summer vacation. Tupac used his skills to write a rap song that amazed his classmates and skyrocketed him from that weird New York kid to that guy who can rap like a boss. Before Tupac was even off to high school, he was in a group that would perform in competitions and win. From the authorized biography, quote, Before long, word of Tupac's talent spread beyond school. In February of 1985, halfway through his 8th grade year, he and Mouse were invited by a well-connected entertainment event planner named Roger to perform at the Cherry Hill Recreation Center with the popular rappers Mantronics, MCT, and Just Ice. The opportunity awakened the boys' dreams of stardom. Assuming the established rap artists on the bill would bring their managers and record label representatives to the show, they saw the gig as an audition for an even larger stage. Tupac and Mouse rehearsed incessantly every night leading up to the performance, hoping to make a lasting impression in front of industry executives. Seeking a name to perform under, they decided to call themselves the East Side Crew, a nod to their East Baltimore pride. When Tupac and Mouse took the stage that night, few would have guessed they had previously performed only for schoolmates, city bus patrons, and friends. They moved confidently through a five-song melody, starting with a song titled Nigga Please, about an overzealous ladies' man. Their set climaxed with Mouse's beatboxing solo, which drew applause and cheers, and ended with a song called Rock On. Though they weren't exceptionally savvy in their stage presence, the duo's performance was a relative success. The boys' intuition that professionals would be there proved correct. In the crowd that night was Mantronics manager and Jive Records A&R executive Virgil Sims, and their preparation paid off. Sims was impressed. Within days of the show, he reached out to Roger to discuss the possibility of offering the East Side crew a recording contract. Roger set up a meeting, and on the ride over, the 13-year-olds could hardly contain their excitement. That day, Virgil made an official offer. He wanted the East Side crew to record their debut album on the Jive Records label. Tupac couldn't wait to get home and share the news with his mom and sister, but he and Mouse needed just one thing to make it happen, their parents' signatures on the contract. Afini was repelled by the idea of her son signing a recording contract, top record label notwithstanding. Without hesitation, she demanded Tupac cut off all communication with the label and set him down for a lecture on the importance of education. Afini had noted rap music's influence on her son, and while she wasn't opposed to the messages and values of hip-hop culture as a whole, she didn't want his interest in rapping to get in the way of his academic career. She took pride in raising well-rounded children and feared that the obligations of a recording contract might overshadow the curiosity he'd already developed for the arts of literature, poetry, and theater. There would be no signed contract, no record for Jive. Afini told them, you guys are too young. Mouse remembered, Tupac cried about that. 
For weeks, Tupac brooded. His mother had stalled the momentum of his dreams, but like most teenagers, he had no choice but to carry on, wait it out, and find a different path. Still, the contract offer boosted Tupac's confidence and focus. It drove him to further hone his craft. Despite his mother's emphasis on education before all else, he started to spend less time at home and more time making music with Mouse. Determined to keep his skills razor sharp so that he'd be ready to go when the next offer came his way. End quote. Afini continued to insist Tupac get what she saw as a practical education, enrolling him in a magnet school aimed at delivering students ready to enter the workforce upon graduation. But the school also had a strong proclivity in sports, and Tupac was lost when it came to sports of any kind. He also had no friends at the school, so Tupac felt very isolated. A few months after starting high school, the Shakurs met a woman who was a retired teacher from the Baltimore School for the Arts. Now remember, Afini went to THE art school in New York. She hated the rich kids who went there, but she loved the idea of the school itself. After talking with this retired teacher, Tupac is sold and Afini realizes the school might be a place to please both of them, her and Tupac so Afini agreed to let him audition. He nails it, of course. Quote, That fall, Tupac started BSA as a sophomore. Right away, he learned that this school experience would be different from all that came before. In the hallways of BSA, he found everyone walked on equal ground. Finally, he was in a place where personal misfortunes were not a target for judgment. The second-hand, staple-hemmed pants, an uneven haircut that had once drawn stairs, now marked his individuality. At BSA, one's personal style was treasured, not shunned. He was finally able to travel freely among his peers with nothing but the passport of his creative genius. Although he was accepted into the theater department, his reputation as one of the more skilled rappers in town preceded him. Just weeks into the school year, he was already navigating the school's hallways and making new friends with ease. Tupac even built friendships with juniors and seniors, a quick path to the top of the social ladder. And the fact that he was born and raised in New York, a city which his classmates uniformly aspired to shine, contributed to his ability to move seamlessly between different cliques, black, white, rich, poor, dancers, visual artists, and performance artists. Tupac became a bona fide chameleon. As successful as Tupac was with the transition to his new school, there was one group who did not accept him into their circle a crew of black students from the visual arts department. They decided that Tupac's appearance was just too bummy to merit a friendship or even a formal acknowledgement, end quote. And what did Tupac do about this? He challenged the group's best rapper to a battle. With Mouse by his side, Tupac, of course, won. And this win turned him into the school's golden boy, now the entire school. But once Tupac was accepted by his classmates, the work began. Tupac had a huge talent. His ability to rap and act right off the cuff made working on basic academics a chore. Instead of putting in the effort on his schoolwork, he spent the time in class on his creativity and distracting his classmates. By the end of his junior year, he was about to be failed and expelled. Tupac was also no good at having anyone tell him what to do. He was always primed to act, not realizing that for actions to be of benefit, you have to think about them first. 
The who, what, when, where, why, and how are ultimately what is going to make your action count. In short, he was a hothead. Like mother, like son. My mother taught me three things. Respect, knowledge, search for knowledge. It's an eternal, eternal journey. That's like my haircut, the line. 360 degrees, find knowledge, always. And, and she taught me to not be quiet. To, if there's something in my mind, speak it. That's what God, that was the breath. She always taught, but also to listen. And she always, she told me this little joke that God gave you two ears to listen and one mouth to speak. Two ears and one mouth, common sense. One mouth, you should speak, but you should also listen. And that's where the knowledge comes from, listening. And once you get the knowledge, then you can speak. And it helps you. So she taught me respect, knowledge, and understanding, mostly. You know, just listen a lot. I'm most like my mom because I'm arrogant. Totally arrogant. I agree. I have to say it. Like, at work, I, I can't hold a job. I, I just quit my job today, actually, because I wanted to come and do this. And they wouldn't let me. And I felt like it was important, and it was more important than serving pizza. And we had enough people, so... I felt like since I'm an actor, they should understand. They should have let me do it, but they didn't. And then I had a cold, so they were making me work in a freezer. And I'm, I'm really not one to be disrespected, and I felt like that was disrespectful because I asked to go, you know. So I quit, and he told me I couldn't quit. And that even made me hyper. I'm arrogant. So when he told me I couldn't quit and we had all these customers, I chose that time to jump on a soapbox, grab my leather jacket, light a cigarette in front of him, smoke, and leave. That was Tupac himself in an interview done when he was in high school in 1988. He was 17 years old. You can find the whole thing, or most of the whole thing, on YouTube at Historic Film Stock. Afini trades her coke habit for a man who was addicted to heroin and caused her two black eyes. Tupac confronts her and they end up on the outs. Afini does get rid of that guy, but she also learns about Tupac's status at school. She decides it's time to leave Baltimore. She knows former Panthers in California, and in fact, Setua is already out there with them for the summer and had decided to stay and enroll in school. So Afini decides to send Tupac out to join his sister. She would stay and close things up in Baltimore and then join the kids later. Meanwhile, back in New York, Christopher Wallace, mostly Chris to his friends, but he also answered to Big, was becoming king of the stoop. This was not without its challenges. Valletta sent young Chris to Catholic school, making his attire a daily source of ammo for neighboring kids looking to pick out any weakness in other kids. Valletta was also pretty strict about who he could see and when he could see them. Don't think for one second that this crossed the line into abuse, because it didn't. But I think Valletta's restrictions did a couple of things. Number one, that Chris spent all of his time in the one block radius of his apartment. And two, that Chris hid a lot of things from his mother. Valletta made a life for herself in Brooklyn, and Chris wanted to do the same. Valletta may have hoped for something lofty for her son, but the path available to a black kid in Bedsty was not the ideal Valletta was hoping for. All Chris wanted was to be important and to have money, and the best way to do that, given what he saw on a daily basis, was to sell drugs. From It Was All a Dream, quote, 
Outside his close friends, few of his peers knew how creative and musically gifted he was. Chris was that big, quiet kid with the incredibly overprotective mom. But what Chico had is what Chris really coveted, money. Valletta was a schoolteacher, so it's not like she was making a salary that would get her interviewed by Robin Leach anytime soon. But she spoiled her only child, giving him everything she could to deter him from a life she couldn't control. Still, there was nothing Valletta could have done to stop her son's curiosity. He wasn't a learn-by-example kid. The only way he ever learned something was by trying it himself. Anyone as naturally inquisitive as Chris was eventually going to venture out beyond his stoop. There was an all-out assault on drugs in America, but in practice that meant there was an all-out assault on black communities. For young black folks just trying to make it in neighborhoods gutted by abandonment and disinvestment, drug dealing was about money and lack of other opportunities. Hustling was appealing because one could walk out their door and have money in their pocket by the end of the day. Of course, the drug game is way more complex than that, but for many, it beat filling out endless applications for minimum wage jobs they'd have to be lucky to get. End quote. I need to say here that Chris was not interested in power. He wasn't looking to be a kingpin, or at least he wasn't looking to be feared. He didn't have the deportment it would take to be the head of a gang. He was too nice. He was only interested in taking care of the people around him his mom, his boys from the stoop. After I got introduced to the drug game, only thing I thought I was going to be was a drug game. I didn't know a lot to you. I didn't want no job. I couldn't see myself getting on no train. I didn't want to work in a barbershop. I didn't want no, no restaurant. I wanted to sell drugs. That's the only thing I thought I was going to ever do. I mean, when you're in the game, you know what I'm saying, you're selling drugs or whatever, you automatically consider that as, you know what I'm saying, the worst person in the world, you know what I'm saying? They didn't even understand the situation before. I wasn't selling drugs just to be selling drugs, you know what I'm saying? I had a baby, I had to, you know what I'm saying, do my thing to feed my family, you know? And that was Biggie himself from a documentary called Biggie, The Life of Notorious B.I.G. on Amazon Prime. Now, remember when I said he hid a lot of things from his mom? We had crack on a plate. Big used to leave it in his room to dry near the window, hang out for a couple of hours to let it dry. When we came back home, Miss Wallace had cleaned his room. And as soon as he came to the door, she just like, like screamed on him and was like, yo, why are you leaving all these hard mashed potatoes in the plate? She scraped it in the garbage. She thought it was like mashed potatoes that had been out for a couple of days, but that was, you know, it was drugs. Jesus Christ, that Bastard. I never knew, I don't know if a human being can be so mad at a dead person. I was mad at my son for that, that incident. That's the shocker. That was a big shocker. That means he brought it into my house. He disrespected my house. And that was Chris's friend Damien and his mother, Valletta, from the documentary Biggie, I've Got a Story to Tell on Netflix. One day, Chris got popped. As he sat in lockup, he realized that incarceration was not for him. Big was not going to be the guy who says, I can do a dime standing on my head. He needed another way to make money. Chris had always been into music. Not only was Cool Herc from Brooklyn, 
Chris's uncle in Jamaica was a DJ, and Chris learned to love music from him. If you were somehow unaware, my PSA. I said a one, two, three, four, come on, girls. I get on the floor. I come alive, yo. Give me what you got, cause I'm guaranteed to make you rock. I said a one, two, three, four, tell me one to my, what are you waiting for? Said a hip. They hit me to the hip and a hip hip a hopper, you don't stop rockin' to the bang, make the boogie say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. Well, skittle we bop, we rock a Scooby Doo, and guess what? America, we love you, because you're rockin' and a roll with us so much so you can rock to your hundred and one years old. In 1979, the Jersey-based Sugar Hill Gang debuted with a song called Rapper's Delight. This is generally regarded as the first commercial rap song. The group was heavily influenced by Jamaican-born, Bronx-based DJ Cool Herc, whose street and house parties in Morris Heights were legendary. The well-known system of playing music that today hosts every rave everywhere, and that no discotheque or dance club would be without, actually started in Jamaica. I would save up money every year to take my son and myself to Jamaica. He loved Jamaica because they spoiled him rotten. Once he placed his eyes on me, he ran a hug. Grandma, I knew Chris would be special. He was loving, kind, genuine. He loved hanging out with his uncle Dave because Dave was the musician and he would take him to these joints where they played their music. And he swore when he became famous, his Dave was going to be a part of his crew. We just band together. And from the first time Biggie hear me start to sing, that was it. Many times we are out there, and he was rapping, and I was singing. So, Chris was uniquely placed to be influenced by and learn from the figurative masters. With his love of the rhyme and his natural dexterity, Chris was really good at putting words together. He's already rapping at every opportunity, but now he's looking for a contract. Damien knows a guy down on his end of Bedsty, a DJ called 50 Grand. 50 Grand does music. Instead of sitting on his stoop hustling drugs, he's running block parties. So Damien brings Big down to meet DJ 50 Grand. The music means there's always rappers hanging around waiting to get in on the action. In Big's case, there's a rapper known as Preem. Timing is everything, but that day that you're talking about, it all played a part in this story. Definitely. That's why we're talking about it. Big started coming down on Bethany and Quincy with me. My neighborhood was kind of more hoodish. And, you know, it was just, it was a little different, man. 50 grand was down on my end, bringing his radio out on Bethany, doing the block parties, bringing the set out. I'm the bridge from big to 50 grand. D-Route used to be with us on Bedford Avenue. We all hustled out there on Bedford. So one day he said, I'm going to bring a kid around to meet you. His original rap name was MC Quest. But when he came on Bedford, he was Biggie. But on the Big and Prime battle, 
Cream got on the mic. They was bad one. Cream was rapping to Big. I had a white washcloth or something. So I had like wrapped it around my hand because I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, damn, we don't even know this dude. And he's like talking shit. So I was like looking like, should I like beat this dude up? Even if you look at the battle between Biggie and Preem, it's like you're Preem and you're like five foot three, five foot four. You on the mic and your voice sounds tinny and don't it sounds thin. Big towering over this little bald-headed dude <laughs> dancing around and act looking like a fool. Big coming like, you know, I'm, you know, like just with presence. I don't even know if Big really understood his Jamaican roots. Just the history of uh, Jamaican DJs from what was called chatting on the mic. The, the braggadocious uh, mic presence was important. And Big had that. That's what set him different from some of the other street rappers was that mic presence. came on better than they seen what he did to the mic. Ain't nobody want to touch that mic. Now, it was a lot of rap. It was a few rappers out there, but on the ad, Big was the guy. Biggie's friends say that he needs to make a demo to take to Def Jam. Needless to say, 50 Grand was impressed. So they set out to make that demo that Big hoped would rocket him to stardom. And that's where I leave you today. If you like the podcast, remember to like, rate, review, and subscribe. If you have suggestions for the show, want to talk to me about the case, or are interested in contributing, Patreon and other contact details are in the show notes. Big will once again see you out. And I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. In two weeks and didn't flaunt it. My brain is haunted with mean dreams. GSs with BBs on it. Supreme schemes to get richer than Richie quickly. Niggas wanna hit me if they get me. Dress my body in linen by Armani. Check it. My lyrical car jack make your brains black. High caliber gaps is all I fuck with. Now keep the rough shit in my circumference. Mad bitches with mad Lucci. Bulletproof vests under their coochies. Spitting my Uzi. Don't lose me. My trigger niggas represent. Driving dirty in J30s. Getting bent. Until my hit holes, my murder mommies I'll be smoking trees in Belize when they find me While you still killing niggas with my